So if you would, please open God's word with me to 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 18. 1 Timothy 1.18. I want to read the text to you before I get started here. The Apostle Paul is writing to Timothy, who is now installed as the pastor at the church at Ephesus, giving him this command in verse 18. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. I want us to go here this morning in light of the last two sermons we heard from this pulpit and in light of the sad news of yet another well-known Reformed brother who is in the spotlight who has this week suffered shipwreck. He has shipwrecked his testimony and his ministry. And I think it's important for us to be reminded about what Paul's telling Timothy here to keep us from suffering shipwreck. The news of this recent brother failing and falling and struggling at this point, but yet seeking hope in Christ and his church. This, this testimony, this news should grieve us, and it should remind us that we're not above our brother either. It should remind us of what the Apostle Paul writes and Peter in their epistles. In Galatians 6, you don't have to turn there, I'll read it to you. Galatians 6, Paul reminds us of something that we need to keep in mind lest we become judgmental, lest we think that we would never do what this brother's done. He writes, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. And Peter writes this in 1 Peter 5, 8, Be sober-minded, be watchful, your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Saints, these verses and Timothy, they remind us that our flesh is weak and our enemy is real. And we need God's means of grace to strengthen us and protect us against our own spiritual shipwreck. And I believe that 1 Timothy is a good place to go to be reminded of that. I believe that 1 Timothy 1, 18 to 20 serves to remind us and show us how important it is that we continue to wage war. Wage war against sin in our own hearts and against Satan's influence in our culture. And do so through the means that God has provided through his church. We see reminders of this throughout Paul's writings in the New Testament. I will have you turn with me to a couple of those. Second Corinthians would be one to start with. Second Corinthians 10. We heard a portion of this from Justin's sermon. 
But it's a good place to be reminded of these serious warnings to take heed to ourselves and to guard our hearts and wage war against this sin that lies so easily within us that wants to creep out because the culture says it's okay. But here, 2 Corinthians 10, 3, we're reminded of something. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. It's an important reminder that we we don't wage war against our spiritual enemies in the flesh. We wage war according to God's means of grace, the weapons he gives us and the truth of his word. We see it again in Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 6, Ephesians 6, beginning in verse 10. Another reminder that's important for us to keep in our hearts today in light of recent failures and others and their spiritual shipwreck. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might, not our might, not our ability, not our self-proclaimed maturity in the faith, but be strengthened in his might. And here's how. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and against the authorities and against the cosmic powers over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. These are God's means of grace given to us in his word and through his church. We need to be reminded of these in these dark days that we face and in the days of our weakness in our flesh. These passages and First Timothy 1 remind us, they tell us that Christians must be ready for battle. We have a real enemy, we have a real weakness, our flesh. We must never forget the calling that we have as Christians to avoid the very appearance of evil because we're weak and we're prone to wander. Therefore, avoid the very presence of it and the call that we have to also fight. Fight the good fight of faith, of truth. We fight this evil in us and the evil around us with the truth of God's word given to us. This is the faith once delivered to the saints. 
We were to do this because, again, we have a real enemy within, our indwelling sin, our unredeemed flesh that has not yet been transformed, but one day will be by God's grace. But today, this real enemy lies within all of us. And we have a real enemy outside of us, Satan. Now, don't pretend that you're so important that Satan himself comes after you. That's probably not the case. But Satan's influence over the culture and the world and even the church at times is very real and very present and at work. To dissuade us as Christians, distract us as Christians, rob us of the joy we have in Christ as Christians when we cave into the culture and the thoughts and the ideologies of those around us. And brother, listen. Sister, listen. The culture's crying, yield to us. We must wage war according to God's means of grace. That's why I want to look at 1 Timothy 1, 18 to 20. Here, I'm going to give you an outline. Here, the Apostle Paul tells Pastor Timothy and us, this is universal in this sense. It applies to all the churches of all time and their leaders. He's telling us here that, Timothy, you have a charge to keep. You have a charge to keep. And this charge must be kept by every Christian leader throughout the ages. Secondly, he's telling Timothy, you have a battle to fight. And this battle must be fought by every Christian and every generation until Christ comes. And thirdly, he tells Timothy, you have a warning to heed. And this warning must be heeded by every Christian here today. You're not above shipwreck. We are all prone to wander. Just these recent testimonies remind us of that once again. It grieves me. It grieves my heart. Partly grieves me because I know that I'm just as prone to wander as the men that I've respected in the past that have wandered. First off, in 1 Timothy 1.18, we can see that every Christian leader is given a charge to keep. Let me read the verse. This charge, this command, I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare. Timothy, you're called to battle. You're called to war. Against the sin in you and the sin around you. Timothy needed this. We need this. Timothy was timid. Timothy was easily dissuaded from his positions because of others who were seemingly more important or more mature than he was, like Hymenaeus and Alexander, the men who were already leading this church and leading them astray. Saying, you've got, you've got a charge to keep, Timothy. You have to keep this until the end. Implied here is until Christ comes, until you go home, one or the other. This charge or command was given in particular, though, to to protect the church, Christ's church, his people. And it was to be carried out in the way that God ordained it through Timothy's use of his spiritual gift, that is, preaching and pastoring this church. The thing that he was recognized for at his ordination We'll look at that in a moment. 
But he needed this reminder at this moment. He needed that reminder as he wrote this letter from the very get-go, from the beginning of it. He needed this reminder because, like I said, he was tempted to run from this battle. This was his natural inclination. And saints, aren't you thankful that we don't drive our spiritual life off of our natural inclinations, but rather by the spirit who is at work in us through the truth? He supersedes our failings and our faults and our default position because he is at work in us both to will and to do God's good pleasure. Look with me at 2 Timothy to be reminded of why he needed this instruction. 2 Timothy 1, beginning in verse 5. He says, I need to tell you this, and here's why. You're prone to run when the battle comes into your life. He says, I'm reminded, though, he says, I'm reminded of your sincere faith. Now, this is a really great pastoral example here. Paul's about to, if you will, exhort him, maybe even rebuke him a little bit at the end of this. But before he rebukes and exhorts, he encourages. That's a good example for all of us to follow when it comes to caring for others. You can easily see the fault of Timothy from Paul's perspective, but he doesn't start there. He leads with encouragement. That's important. He says, I'm reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands, recognized at his ordination. For God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Timothy was prone to run. He's saying, you don't have to run. You've been given the truth. It's recognized in your life that God is at work in you. You need to be reminded and remember that God has equipped you for this fight already. He, he, he equipped you, and that's why I left you here at Ephesus to carry on this work as their pastor, to carry out this charge to protect the bride of Christ against the errors brought in by these false teachers who try to rob the church for their own gain. Go back with me to 1 Timothy. You can see that. That is part of the charge that he's given there at the very beginning of the letter. Chapter 1, verse 3. I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. That's interesting to me. He, he ends with this charge, this, this purpose for this charge to, to stop these false teachers, these guys who are disrupting the church, is love. But it comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and a, a sincere faith, a sincere doctrine, a true doctrine. And I think that's why he leads... With this idea of these guys are going to disrupt it, but you have to charge them not to. But for you to charge faithfully with authority, you need to be examining your own heart. You need to know if you're doing this from a pure heart of love, from a pure heart with a good conscience and a sincere understanding of the faith, the doctrine. And Paul knows if you don't do that, if you don't have the heart conditioned right first, 
and you try to charge others to do what they're called to do, you're one, either going to be a hypocrite in their sight, or one, you're simply not going to fight. You know you're not living up to the standard you're proclaiming others to follow. So you back away. So he's reminding him here of why he needs to continue growing in his own protection so he can protect the good of others in the church and stop these men from bringing in error error and false teaching. Now go back to 1 Timothy. I'll rather go to 1 Timothy chapter 4. 2 Timothy 4. He's telling him, look, you've got a charge. You're called to protect the church. You're called to guard against your own heart, your own sin. And here's the cure. Here's the answer. Here's how you are to do this. Here's how you carry out this command. And this is important because this is the way we protect you and this is the way you protect your own soul. The same means of grace given to all of us here. He tells him, here's what you do. Number one, verse one. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is the judge of the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom. Preach the word. That's it. How do you guard your own heart and guard the purity of the church? Let the word loose. God will take care of it. But you be faithful to carry out that duty to the very end, no matter what it costs you. It's interesting, he says, be ready to do this in season and out of season, meaning when it's easy, when it's popular, when it's acceptable, and when it's not. In season and out of season. And here's what you do with the word. You reprove, you rebuke, you exhort, and you do it with complete patience and teaching. This is the means of grace that guards us from spiritual shipwreck. We, like Timothy, though, must be faithful not only to hear it, but to actually apply it. And here's why. He says, for the time is coming. And Brother Paul, we would tell you, the time is here. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. And will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. But then he tells Timothy, but as for you, Timothy, always be sober minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. So we can see that he's charged here by Paul in multiple places to carry out this duty of, of preaching and teaching and being patient with those who he's ministering to consistently in spite of the difficulty in the battle, but he's got to rely on the word to do the fighting for him, but he must therefore proclaim it with confidence and a pure heart, a clear conscience and a pure heart. That's what he gets at back in 1 Timothy 1, 18 to 20. He's called to employ his spiritual gift that he's been given of teaching, equipping the saints, preaching, edifying the saints, and living out or modeling the truth that he's preaching before the saints personally. See, our doctrine and life can't be divorced. Sadly, so many parachurch ministries and parachurch ministers forget this. They become self-reliant on their own abilities, their independence, their crowd that listens and follows them, and they begin to think that they are above reproach, yet they're 
falling into the pride issue of life that says, I don't need anyone else. I can do this in my own strength. Look how faithful I've been. Look how much fruit I'm bearing. Therefore, I can do this apart from this. But he's saying, look, if you're going to do this faithfully, it's got to affect your heart, your life, your ministry to the saints. Then they'll listen to you and the authority you deliver in preaching. If the preacher isn't sanctified, the sermon is nullified. And that hurts to say that. Timothy's charged seriously to do something that I can't even imagine allowing any of you to do for me. He's being charged by Christ for him to protect Christ's bride. I love all you men in this church, and I know you would do your best, but I don't know that I would trust you to guard my bride the way I would guard my bride. And so when he's telling Timothy this, Timothy's feeling the weight of this. I'm being called to protect the bride of Jesus. I can't mess this up. I need to do this right. But to do it right, he not only has to preach the truth, he has to guard his own heart. He has to sanctify his heart, set it apart unto Christ. He's to do that so that this church would be ready for their battles. So they would be spiritually strong. That their hearts would be conformed to the word of God so that their their life would be changed and they would be able to see the issues in their own heart, their, their personal sins, and they would be able to see Satan's influence in the culture around them, and then they would be able to turn in faith back to God's word for their comfort, for their strength, for their nourishment in the days ahead. Look with me at 1 Timothy 6, verse 11. This is what he's telling Timothy here. You are to fight the good fight of faith. Wage war against your own sin and the sin in the culture. Wage war by going to God's means of grace because the war is coming whether you want to acknowledge it or not. But you need to make sure your heart is prepared for the battle you're calling others to walk into. In 6.11 it says, But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness Pursue godliness, pursue faith, pursue love, pursue steadfastness, pursue gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. You want to fight the good fight of the faith? It's not standing up against all the things going on in the world. It's looking into your own heart and saying, am I fleeing from these things and running to Christ, to his righteousness, his call on my life? If I'm doing that, I'm fighting the good faith. And guess what? You'll be salt and light in an evil culture. The world will stand up and take notice. There's something different about these people. Because their life is being conformed to the image of Christ through his means of grace. It says, take hold of the eternal life. I mean, grasp the, the, the reality of your eternal life in Christ to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things, and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment. This is the charge. To keep the commandments, to preach the word, to be faithful, to declare the truth to the church, to examine your heart. Keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. The charge, saints, that's given here and in 1 Timothy 1.18 is a divine charge. 
It's a divine charge given from God to every Christian and every Christian leader in every generation. It's a reminder of how important the local church is in God's protection plan against spiritual shipwreck. That's what Paul's trying to convey to Timothy. He's telling him, look, the saints that are under your care, they will only be strengthened for the battle ahead and equipped for the battle ahead through this, through teaching, through preaching, and your personal application of the word you proclaim. Church, that's what equipped this church at Ephesus, and that's what will equip us to discern the enemy within our indwelling sin when it crops up. And this is what strengthens us and them to fight against the enemy without. And we see the enemy without very easily. Satan's influence is throughout our culture. Things that we know are obviously sin are now acceptable and to be celebrated. Yet we say they're sin. Well, we become the point of the battle at that point. They come after us. The minds of men are influenced by the God of this world, Satan. And we must be prepared for this battle. And if we're not examining our own hearts, we won't be ready when the battle comes to our doorstep. And it will. So in 1 Timothy 1.18, Paul reminds Timothy and us, especially Christian leaders, to keep this charge not only for his own protection, but for the protection of those he's called to minister because Every Christian generation, secondly, is going to have a battle to fight. In 18b, we see that. Paul simply says there to Timothy, a command, and says, wage the good warfare. Wage the good warfare. Well, how do you do that? Well, he's already told him throughout both these epistles, wield the sword of God's word and do it faithfully. First, Take the, the, the sword of God's word and plunge it deep into your own heart. And God will open up the truth about what's going on inside of you so you can then care for those who are hurting around you and protect them. But handle the word faithfully. That's why he calls this a good warfare. And Timothy's called to wage this good warfare personally as well as, as a leader, as a pastor. He's to do it faithfully. Because he's called to to teach the church how they can, too, fight this battle against their own sin and the error around them and do it through the knowledge of God's word and do it for the glory of God's name. That's why he calls it a good warfare. It's good because this warfare is for the sake of Christ's name and the good of his church. It protects his bride protects the church, and it does so by equipping them in the truth about what God's granted us in Christ Jesus. And it does that so that we can fight then with confidence, knowing that though I still falter, I still fall into sin, I am not thrown completely down. Christ has taken my place at the cross so I can get up. And so this equipping through the truth is what gives us confidence to go into the battle knowing that the Lord is with us already. He went before us to the cross of Calvary and he fought the battle and came out victorious on the other end. And we rest in him and that's where our confidence comes from. But we won't know that. We won't think about that. We'll let sin that so easily besets us drive us down to depression and guilt to the point that we don't want to do anything for the kingdom because we don't think we're able. But we must stop at that point. 
and look to Christ. Our conscience will be cleansed by the truth of what Christ accomplished at the cross. And it reminds us when we do that, that he has went before us and he is with us in the midst of the fight. He's there fighting for us and he will be victorious. He's with us. That's something we should really remember when we're called to wage war on our own sin and even the sins around us in our culture that seems to be coming out more and more every day. Even though he's with us, though, saints, Paul's very, very aware that it doesn't mean that the battle will be easy. If you could pull the Apostle Paul's shirt off and look at his back, you would know that. The scars of his faith would probably reach from the lower part of his back to the very top. He was a walking gospel track of what it means to stand and fight for Christ and do so for the glory of God. The Lord was with him in it all, but it didn't make it easy that it made him humble. It made him examine himself. If I'm going to be an ambassador for Christ, I must examine my heart, my motive, my desire, and my life in light of what he has promised and called me into. And when I do that, I'll be ready for the war when it comes my direction. And I'll be willing to accept whatever comes my way for the sake of honoring Jesus and protecting his people. And one thing we can be reminded of, I think, too, is the passage I read out of Corinthians earlier. that We can't wage this war in our own strength. We can't do this. We can't fight against the culture and the influence of the world around us and even our own sin in our own strength. We must have God's spiritual weapons that he has given to us through the church. And we need training that comes as a means of that grace that he wants us to have so that we can stand firm on the last day in Christ. If, if we're not making our hearts and minds available to the means of grace, if we're, if we're not ready to, to fight the way God tells us to fight, or if we think that we can fight this battle against our own sin and the sins of our culture, if we think we can do that alone, You and I will find ourselves, like Hymenaeus and Alexander, spiritually drifting due to our own arrogance and the culture's influence that's always around us. If we're not learning to sanctify Christ as Lord in our own lives daily, feeling our sails, if you will, with with the word of God so that our souls would be propelled into the battle with confidence that God is working in us to sanctify us, then we'll be prone to to wander, will be prone to get off course and sink into deep despair and guilt because our consciences will be wounded. We will not be prepared to stand and fight because we know our own propensity towards sin is dominating our flesh and we feel useless. That's why it's so important for us to examine our faith, our doctrine, but also examine our life, our heart, our conscience. We're to have a good conscience. We need a good conscience because we know this. Sin's presence in our flesh, if it's left unchecked, it will flood our minds with temptations, will it not? If you don't see sin, call sin out, recognize sin according to God's word, it will overwhelm you with temptations. Sin never lets up. It will never cease to try to lead you in a direction that God would say, you don't have to go. Satan's influence is much the same. His influence in our world, if it's left unchecked by God's word, 
will cause us to drown. It will cause our convictions to be consumed by the culture's acceptance of certain sins. And we will not want to stand firm because we don't want to be ostracized. So his influence in our life through the world, if it's left unchecked, will drown our convictions. We'll suffer spiritual shipwreck. So if we're not ready to wage war against both our flesh and Satan's influence in our minds and our world, we're going to find ourselves like, again, Hymenaeus and Alexander. Don't think that you won't get there if you neglect these gifts of grace. You will. You will. I will, too. I think that's why Paul tells us here in this passage in 1819a, he tells Timothy, if he's going to wage war, he better begin by holding faith and a good conscience. Look at verse 19a, holding faith and a good conscience. This is the charge you're given. You're to wage the good warfare, holding the truth, clinging to the truth, clinging to God's word. And let that word transform your own heart and life. Have a good conscience. He's saying, look, if you're going to wage a good warfare against sin and Satan, you need to be strong in the faith. And you need a clear conscience. If you don't, if you don't have both of these when you go into battle, you're going to find yourself again like Hymenaeus and Alexander. Spiritually shipwrecked. And you wonder, how did I get there? This is how you did it. You neglected the very gifts that God's given you, prayer, the fellowship of the saints, the hearing of God's word proclaimed, the study of God's word, the the amazing gift of a copy of the Bible that you have on your shelf, on your phone, all around your house. There's never been a time in church history when we've had more resources at our fingertips as Christians to fight this battle. We have no excuse. It's when we need to battle by submitting ourselves to the means of grace first. Listen, if you, if you sit and watch Facebook and you watch CNN and Fox News and you're trying to find ways to battle against the culture and battle against the sin you see all around you and all the, the things that have cropped up that blaspheme God's name and you're not first fighting the war within you, you will become a hypocrisy-plated Christian. You will look like one who is full of zeal, but inside there's nothing but dry bones. You first need to fight the flesh by submitting to God's means of grace before you try to fight the culture. That in itself, I think, would stop 90% of the parachurch ministries that are so off track in so many ways. It's easy to decry atheism. It's easy to decry abortion. It's easy to decry homosexuality and say, look at the world, look at the culture. It's consumed with evil. That's easy to do, but what about the evil inside of you, in your flesh? How many of you, including myself, have spent this week contemplating the glory of Christ and the wickedness of our own sin? Puritans did that a lot. We can learn from them. Saint, the only way that our faith and our own lives will be conformed to Christ, the only way our faith will be strengthened and our conscience cleansed, is by submitting to God's word and the accountability that we are called to as God's people to one another. Let me give you some verses to think about. Submitting to God's word and accountability to his people are God's means of grace to protect us from shipwreck. 1 Corinthians 10, 1 Corinthians 10, 13. 1 Corinthians 10 shows us a means of God's grace to protect us from spiritual shipwreck. God's word is what will anchor us in the storm of temptation. 
No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. This should anchor you in the storm of temptation. The way that he provides of escape, saints, it's not hard to figure out. It's Jesus. He is the way of escape that he has already provided for us in the light of temptations that come our way that we are naturally prone to. He's already conquered them at the cross. When you sin, look to Christ. The, the sin that so easily besets you is, is happening in you and you should respond to it immediately with remorse, yes, but you should immediately in that remorse look to the cross and rejoice. If you don't, you're going to dwell there and you're going to fall into this dangerous introspection that basically says, I'm so defeated, so down, so discouraged, I cannot do anything for the kingdom of God. That's not the intent of this verse. We're all prone to sin and temptation. But when you do find yourself there, look to what God has provided as a way of escape and get out and rejoice. That should anchor you in the storm of temptation. Hebrews 12. Another means of grace would be God's word and God's people combined. Hebrews 12 mentions this as God disciplines us. God's word and his people guide us to the the safety of correction here as you'll see in Hebrews 12, verse 7. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. The, the King James actually has a deeper impact at this point. You're bastards and not sons. Besides this... We've had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they discipline us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he, God, disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. It's the fruit of discipline, the fruit of righteousness that gives you a clear conscience, peace. And how does God do it? He does it through the means of grace he's given beside you, the saints. You know, we know the Holy Spirit convicts us of our sins, certainly, as believers. But the Holy Spirit also uses your brother and sister in Christ sitting next to you, who's probably much more um, a reminder of God's presence when they do that. And it says this in verse 12, Therefore... Since you're going to be disciplined by God, it's going to produce the fruit of righteousness by being trained in it. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. There's the point of discipline. God's not beating his children. He's healing his children by keeping them from going down the path that's going to destroy them and their witness and their usefulness and their joy in Christ. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see God. Another means of grace through his word carries us to the great promise that we all know in Romans 8.1. 
For those who are in Christ, therefore, there is no condemnation. It carries us. God's word carries us to the promises in his word, the promises that tells us even when we fail, even when we fall, even when we sin in a way that we think no one would understand, no one would be able to forgive. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Christ was condemned for you. There's nothing left for you. He took it all. You're now a child of God, loved by the father. You'll be disciplined in that love to be made more like his son, Jesus Christ. So God's word, God's people are his means of grace to direct us how we should live so that we would have a good conscience and a strong faith. And we would not hesitate to follow our Lord when he calls us into battle. This is the point that Paul is trying to get across to Timothy. Watch your life and your doctrine, he'll tell Timothy. Watch your life and the way that truth that you proclaim affects you. Because if you don't have a strong faith, a, a confident assurance in the truth, if you don't have a strong faith and a clear conscience, you and I will be weak and we will, by nature, avoid all spiritual battles. We'll cave to the culture. Listen, if, if you've been anywhere in public and something is brought up praising the governor of California and his lifestyle, which is a really wretched thing to say about a man who's living in absolute opposition to God sexually. But you say something about that man, not against his character, not against his personality, rather, but you say something about the sin that he is proclaiming and demanding be celebrated, the sin of homosexuality. You cannot tell me that if you spoke up in a conversation with unbelieving friends about that, that you would not feel intimidated. What are they going to say about you? You know, he who's without sin cast the first stone. You're a sinner, too. If he's doing this and it's sin, what about you? And you, as a Christian, if you have a sincere or a strong faith and a clear conscience, can say, you're absolutely correct. You're absolutely correct. I just don't pretend like what I do is acceptable and to be celebrated. I see it from God's perspective. It is absolute sin. And I need to repent of it. But it will be hard to do that. And if you're not living according to the truth you proclaim, if you're not living it out in your heart with a clear conscience, you simply just won't proclaim it. You won't engage in the battle. Because you know in your heart you are pretending to be a Christian. When the culture is crying out against the truth and you know if you cry out they're going to see your own hypocrisy, you'll shut up. But if you live a life of integrity, submitted to God's word, you'll be able to stand and stand firm in the truth with a clear conscience. That's why Paul tells Timothy that he needs his mind and his life sanctified in the truth. And so do we, right? He's trying to help Timothy get an idea of how, how serious this battle is that he's called into. And Saints, I need to ask you that this morning. Do you see the seriousness of the battle that lies ahead of you in this world? If you stand firm in the truth, if you see the seriousness of it, examine your hearts. I must examine my heart. What sins am I entertaining? Why, why am I allowing this to go on in my own life if I'm being called to battle against sin in the world around me? I need to see the seriousness of this. Because I'll tell you this, and I'll mention it again in a moment. Our culture and our own sin and Satan himself in the influence of this culture, they take no prisoners. 
The world doesn't want you to simply be quiet. They want you to celebrate their sin. And unless you do that, they will come against you. You better see how serious this is. America has been granted many freedoms that we have squandered. Now is the time for us to stand up and examine, examine our freedom, because it may be taken away. Examine if we're willing to stand if it's taken away. Think about the man in Canada preaching the truth, imprisoned for not following COVID laws. But he got up and preached the truth again. He's not noble. Christ is noble. He's a messenger. He is a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's doing his duty to carry out this charge. And he's fully aware that it may cost him. And he did it anyway. So do you see the seriousness of the battle that lies before you? If you do, let me ask you a couple of things. Are you actively, presently fighting sin in your own heart by faithfully digging into God's word daily? Are you faithfully fighting off Satan's influence by pursuing godly practices, godliness, more than you are seeking cultural acceptance at work, at home? If you're not willing to fight against these things, let me just tell you this. Their undercurrent will sweep you away and you'll be landing on the rocks and suffer spiritual shipwreck in the future. It's happening all around us. Now, let me, let me go on to, to say a couple of things that I think are going to be good news to you. God not only gives us his word and his people, but he tells us how to use the word that he's given to his people so that we can actually apply another gift he's given by his grace. And the gift that he's given to us as the church to protect us from spiritual shipwreck is a gift called church discipline. Church discipline works like a navigational compass. It helps get us back on course. It's given to basically preserve us, not destroy us. It's given to guide us, not destroy or distract us from what we think we need, but what we actually need. It points us in the right direction. And the goal of all church discipline is the protection and restoration of the saints for the glory of God. And positive church discipline is something that you're experiencing right now. Everyone in this room who's a believer is under church discipline at this moment. And it is hopefully positive church discipline. It is exercised when the word of God is being taught to you and you respond to it in obedience. Negative church discipline is exercised when there's habitual disobedience. And both of those are meant to protect the church from sin and Satan's influence. Because again, sin left unchecked will extinguish the Christian's joy. It'll, it'll compromise our convictions. It'll crush our witness to the world. And it possibly will also reveal an unregenerate heart in you. That's what Paul warns about here in the last part of the verse. In 1 Timothy 1, 19b-20. In verses 19b-20, we are all given a warning to heed. This is given by... I think, divine implication to every Christian in every generation, in particular to the leaders. But here, his point of leading is to teach the church church how to apply the truth he's leading them in. He says, by rejecting this, that is a faith, a solid faith, and a good conscience, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. That's his goal. He wants them to not blaspheme. 
That's why he hands them over to Satan. So the action he's taking here is not to condemn these men himself, but rather to see them disciplined by the Lord and to see whether or not their faith was genuine. See, it's, it's how we respond that matters here. God will discipline his children for the purpose of producing a fruit of righteousness in us. And you see, you see how you respond to your spiritual shipwreck that you're going to experience at some point in your life when you sin. And how you respond to God's discipline reveals what's really inside of your heart, whether you're truly a Christian or not. True Christians, when disciplined, long for restoration. That's all they want. They want to be right with God. They want communion with God. They want communion with God's people. And they want to do what's right to those they've wronged. If you don't desire that, if you don't want to own your sin and recognize you have wronged others and you want to confess that before God and them, then there may be a chance that you're not a true Christian. Examine your heart. I said this was a universal, I think, directive that's given here. So I don't want you to think when you come to verse 20 that the warning, this heeding that that he's calling us to do is is just for those false teachers who are coming into the church. No, he's he's giving them a warning here and a reproof, if you will, to see how they will respond. And the way they responded exposed what was really in their heart, which was unbelief. So how you respond to God's discipline when you suffer spiritual shipwreck will really tell what's going on inside your heart. Now, here's what you need to keep in mind. Since it's not just to false teachers, that means it's to all of us as well. There are many kinds of spiritual shipwrecks that we, as true Christians, can experience if we do not hold to the faith with a clear conscience. If you neglect the warnings of God's word and teaching and you live contrary to it, you will suffer, likely suffer shipwreck of your witness due to your moral compromises. You'll easily suffer shipwreck in your marriages due to deceptive secrets. And you'll easily suffer shipwreck of your Christian joy due to your selfish desires if you do not heed the warnings to look to Christ and to turn from your sins. That's why verse 20 is not just a warning to false teachers. It's something that we all need to take heed to this morning. We need to understand that our indwelling sin, again, in Satan... And our culture will not take prisoners. They accept celebration or death to us. If you don't confess your sins and you don't repent and submit to God's word, you're going to find yourself on the rock of shipwreck. Your, your spiritual strength will be extinguished. The, the culture's influence will corrupt your witness for Christ and the work that you've been so adamantly about throughout your life. That's why you must fight against both your own indwelling sin and the influence of the world. And you do that by clinging again to God's word and his instruction that comes even through his people coming to you and calling out sin. Saints, I don't want you to be swept away by the current of this culture, by your own sin. I don't want you to be tossed to and fro and end up with a bad conscience and absolutely just destroyed in your witness And maybe taking other people down with you as a result. I want your consciences to be cleansed this morning. And I believe God's word will do that as we submit to it. So let me ask you a question. A couple of questions. I know I'm going long. Sorry. 
Oh, sorry. Do you have a weak faith today? Do you have a weak faith? Do you have a weak faith because you've drifted from God's word and God's people? Do you have a guilty conscience today because you're sinking in sin instead of crying out for mercy from God and seeking help? Let me just say this. If, if you're experiencing any of that today, I have a word of hope for you and I, for all of us here. That word is repent. Repent. God commands us to change our minds and actions in order to protect us from sin. That's what repentance is about. So if you feel shipwrecked today because of your sins, simply simply do what God tells us. First John, last passage we'll look at. First John, simply do what he says here. Confess your sins to God. Come into agreement with God about how he sees your sin and then quickly trust in his cleansing power through the blood of Christ, which he has provided already. First John 1, 5. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship, koinonia, with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have communion with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. In verse 9. If we confess, literally means to come into alignment with God's perspective. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's your hope. This is what we must do, not just one time in our life, but as Christians daily. We must ask God daily to turn us from our sinful behavior, sinful thinking, And then turn us quickly in faith to his word and to his people and to his Christ to find our cleansing and our discipline and our encouragement to continue in this battle. We all need that reminder today because we all need a change of mind and a change of action. If we truly want to do what Paul is telling Timothy, if we truly want to honor the Lord Jesus in this world as it grows darker, we need to remember this. You need to remember something. He who calls you to wage war on sin and Satan's influence will also keep you from a spiritual shipwreck if you rest in his means of grace. Now, you're going to have to forgive me. One more verse, and we will be done. You need to remember this. It's very important. The one who calls you to wage war will keep you from a spiritual shipwreck, according to Jude 17. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time, there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith, that is doctrine, sacred doctrine, and praying in the Holy Spirit, keeping yourselves in the love of God being mindful of the love of God through the holy faith, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. Have mercy, he says, on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Then he ends with this glorious doxology. 
This is the one who calls you to wage war. This is what he promises you as you engage in this warfare. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we have a war to wage against our own sin and the culture around us, and we can't do it in and of ourselves. We need your grace. We want to thank you for the means of grace you've already given us in Christ, through Christ, and for Christ's sake. We pray that you would help our hearts and minds to be able to grasp the truth and the promises and the hope that lies in these means of grace you've already given to us, and that we would avail ourselves of these things that we would be protected from spiritual shipwreck. And God, I pray for each saint here today and those who are yet called saints. I pray that you would keep them from sin. Guard their minds in Christ Jesus from the culture's influence. I pray that you protect them and you cause them and myself to examine our lives in light of what you've already provided and then turn our hearts away from our sin and to our Savior For your sake and your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.